Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In recent weeks, Castor Semenya has been one of the most talked about figures in the world of sports. Semenya was the women's 800-meter gold medal runner in both the 2012 and 2016 Olympics. She also happens to have what is clinically described as a sex development disorder, or DSD, known as 46XY. This means Semenya has XY chromosomes, which typically correspond to males, not females. One symptom of such a condition is that the affected athlete will produce drastically elevated levels of testosterone, which is strongly linked to a wide variety of athletic abilities. Last week, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that Semenya and other female runners with unusually high testosterone must reduce their T levels, as they're known, if they want to compete in middle-distance running events, including the 800 meters. The decision is seen as significant not only to the extent that it affects women such as Semenya directly, but also as a possible precursor to similar directives in other sports. Joining me to speak about the court's decision is Dorian Coleman, a professor of law at Duke University who participated as an expert witness in the Court of Arbitration for Sport case. She is also a former American indoor track champion and a Swiss national track champion. Ms. Coleman's recent article for Quillette about the Court of Arbitration for Sport's decision, which has been widely shared since its publication last week, is entitled, A Victory for Female Athletes Everywhere. Can you tell our listeners, why was this court decision a victory for female athletes? So it was a victory because the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is essentially the Supreme Court of Sport internationally, we call it CAS, recommitted to the proposition that sex differences remain salient, at least in sport. And because of this, biologically female athletes all over the world can assume, at least for the time being, that the category will remain protected and they'll have a real shot at making finals and podiums. And that's, you know, for women who are training from the time they're children through their adulthood to do precisely that, it's really important to know and to be able to count on the biologically protected category. A lot of the pushback against the court's decision has been centered around the idea that Castor Semenya is legally a woman. Her rights, I think, as the court even acknowledged, are subject to discrimination here. How do you square that with the ideal of universal female participation in sport? She is legally a woman, and that has to be respected, and I think sport does respect that. That's not at issue. The women's category in elite sport was carved out for biological females to ensure that they, like biological males, have a chance at the goods that flow from sport. And for the individual female athletes, that means, again, making finals, making podiums. And in order for those goods to continue to exist for half of the population of the world, the category has to be defined on the basis at least of biological sex-linked traits. 
the notion that there are only rights on one side, I think, is is a false one. I think it's clearly a case of competing rights. And in those kinds of cases where important competing rights collide, it's inevitable that um, the decisions have to be made. And the hope of elite sport in the last 10 years has been that the compromise that they hammered out, which is not to exclude people who are biologically male but who identify as female, but rather um, to condition their inclusion on having at least testosterone levels in the range of testosterone levels that are capable of being produced by ovaries rather than testes. At the heart of the scientific debate is the role of testosterone in regard to athletic performance. If you look at the lay press, there are some who are trying to question that. Is it a scientific certainty that testosterone plays a strong role in things like speed and strength? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an undebatable proposition within the physical sciences community. So when you said the heart of the scientific debate, that's not actually a debate in the physical sciences community among cardiologists, pulmonologists, endocrinologists, sports science experts. To the extent there's debate, it is either an uninformed one or it is informed, but then curated by policy concerns, right, about reifying testosterone, you know, in broader ways in the society. The New York Times published an op-ed a a few days ago called The Myth of Testosterone, and the subhead was, it is not the quote-unquote male sex hormone, nor is it the key to athletic performance. Why do we insist otherwise? In which two authors, I don't think they were endocrinologists or medical doctors, cast out on the idea of testosterone as having a significant effect in terms of athletic performance. Do you see a lot of political slogans masquerading as health sciences? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt that that's what it is. And that doesn't mean it's not a legitimate, interesting, anthropological or political discussion, again, about the role of testosterone in societal myths about masculinity and femininity. But that comes out of social sciences critiques of physical sciences. Those authors are really well-respected social scientists, but they aren't physical scientists. And the physical scientists view the testosterone in sport question, as one told me when I I embarked on this project, one plus one is two. That's what it is for them. The New York Times yesterday um, published an article by Gina Collada, who is their lead science and medical writer. She's been stalwart on this for a decade. She wrote an article in the science section again of the Times. I mean, I think it was called Got Testosterone or something like that, where she talked to some of the leading sports scientists in the field about the argument that people were making back then and have been making for like the last 20 years, that if females could just have more equal access to training facilities, the best coaches, the best scientific technology, in general, societal support for their endeavor, that they would eventually catch up to men in terms of their performances. Ten years ago, she wrote about how because of the testosterone differences between males and females, that was just never going to happen. A week ago, again, in the time she touched bases with some of the leading sports scientists and cardiologists in the field, and, and they repeated what I've described here, which is that for them, this is one plus one is two. The Times, like a lot of other major publications, especially in this period, has different divisions. And the op-ed division is a different beast than, for example, the science and medicine section of the paper or the sports section of the paper. The sports section of the paper last year published an analysis piece of mine where I described the new regulation that was the subject of this case that we're talking about today. And they published the correct iteration of the regulation and what its goals were. 
You're a law professor at Duke University, and Duke University is its own kind of community with scientific departments and liberal arts departments and the law department. In your own backyard, how do opinions differ on the question of where to draw the line about who can participate in women's sports? I think you've captured it really nicely. A major university that's as large as Duke is with as many departments as it has, and even within the law department, I've been having wonderful debates with my colleagues over the last few years about these issues. I think that the range of perspectives here is just like it is in your comment section, for example. The one thing I would say is that the conversation that we have is very different depending upon whether we can start from the same factual premise. And so your your point about whether testosterone is or is not as performance enhancing as people in sport like to say is a threshold question that if we can get past that and understand the science, the discussion about what to do given that science about the eligibility standard then becomes a really interesting policy question, right? Because we're all on the same page about what our bodies do, how much testosterone they produce and not, and the performance effects of testosterone in the male range. Once that's set, then there's really cool debate to be had about whether there should be a women's category in elite sport or in sport in general. Those debates do sound interesting, but at the end of the day, decisions do have to be made about who is and who is not eligible. And I'm looking here at a tweet from Kirsty Duncan. She's the Minister of Sport in Canada. She tweeted out something extraordinary right after the court's decision. Her tweet was, No sport organization should be deciding who is a woman or what makes a woman. Could you describe for me what would happen if no sport organization had any authority to decide who got to compete in female athletic competitions and that were entirely based on self-identification? What would happen is, for example, it's hypothesized that her perspective comes to pass and casts in a later decision says no sport organization can decide who is a woman. You have to accept entries based on self-identification. We would only see male bodies on podiums and we would only see male bodies in finals. And for some, that would be fine. And that's because they hold the position that who we are in terms of our gender is ultimately to be privileged over how our bodies are built biologically, physiologically. Again, I have said that is a legitimate policy position to hold, but it would be an entirely different category women's sport. It would be an entirely different thing from what it was set out to be. You yourself, through your personal history as an athlete, reflect the goals that society has for female athletics. In the 1980s, I believe, you were a beneficiary of then newly enacted American laws that required universities to support female athletics to the same extent they supported male athletics. And encoded in the legislation was an expression of the fact that this was an important value for society. Were you aware at the time that when you were an athlete, you were living out ideals that maybe one day might be threatened? Or were you simply just looking for a place to compete and do the sport you loved? I think those of us who were athletes in that seminal period inevitably understood what was going on more generally. I mean, we were enjoying ourselves and fulfilling our dreams. And this is the mid to late 70s through the 80s. It was such an important political moment for women's rights and Title IX in the United States and women's sport more generally across the world was emblematic 
symptomatic of that big cultural and societal shift toward equal opportunities for women as well in colleges, in universities, in educational spaces, in sports spaces, in employment spaces. Um, and depending on how you calculate the civil rights period in the United States or in other Western democracies, it was in the heart of that period. So we were all aware of what was going on. And we were aware that we were stepping into male-only spaces. When I first got to Villanova, there was a famous track coach there, Jumbo Elliott, and he was famous for not letting the women on the team on the track. It was his track and we weren't going to get on the track. And so special hours had to be set out that he would agree to. We knew what was going on. We weren't necessarily intending to be political ourselves, and many of us weren't. I certainly wasn't at the time, but we knew what was going on. We knew the moment in which we were living. But at the time, you must have informally, or maybe even at times formally, done some aspects of training with male athletes who, like you, were middle distance runners, 800 meter, 1500 meter runners. Was it fairly clear to you that there was a distinct level change between biologically male and biologically female athletes in your field? Absolutely. In sport, this is just not an issue. If you're an athlete, you are maybe understanding the larger sort of sociological debate about gender, but sport is all about bodies and what they can do and what they can't do, right? And so when you are an athlete, we are competitive with boys through the onset of puberty. And as puberty begins, male-bodied people, however they identify who are in sport, become stronger, faster, more powerful in all of the ways that matter for sports performance and that are the reason for the performance gap in athletics. And so I certainly did not train with male athletes at Villanova, but in high school I did. And then later in college, I transferred after my freshman year. And then certainly on club teams, we would do work with the men, including the elite men. But for example, if you were doing, you know, a set of intervals, the women would step in and out of every one, for example. There is absolutely no doubt that we understand the sex differences in performance. One of the common criticisms you hear of the court's decision is that all great athletes, uh, male or female, have some natural advantage. Michael Phelps is the example given of his incredibly long arms, and he's like a machine made for swimming. This particular class of legal females who have this 46XY DSD, why should that be singled out? It should be singled out because the women's category in elite sport was created as a space for biological females and their traits to shine. And it was specifically designated as a space where one particular trait would not be included. We're starting with testes and the testosterone levels they produce that are in the male range, not the female range, and the physiological effect of those very different testosterone levels. And so in the male category, every single male has them, right? So they're not special. They're not different. They're not to be celebrated. They are what defines the category male sports. And then within the category male sports, you can have an athlete like Michael Phelps, who shines. And that's the whole point of elite sport is within the category that sports policymakers define for whatever set of reasons they choose to define a particular category. We're talking about the male-female divide. You could be talking about weight classes in boxing and wrestling as another example of classifications and inclusions, exclusions that sport has chosen for policy reasons to make. But the men's and women's categories were set aside so that those two groups and societies could each have a chance at the goods that flow from sport. And what defines the categories is precisely gonads and, and the endocrine systems that flow from the gonads. So ovaries and estrogen 
androgens and some level of testosterone in the women's category and testes and male T levels um, in the men's category. And so to say that normal male testes and T levels when brought into the female range are to be celebrated like Michael Phelps's special feet and, and, and arms and body um, is to ignore that sport has decided for policy reasons to set aside a women's category that excludes precisely the traits that define the men's category. In your article, you described how, in some cases, women who lose out on a chance to get to the podium are victimized twice. They're victimized by the fact that they can't get to the podium because they lose to people who have physical advantages over them, which are outside the range you would expect in women's sports. But then they're victimized again because if they speak out against the phenomenon, they're attacked as bigots. Almost the entire female field, and that is female athletes in the affected events, but also across the board, have censored themselves and are not speaking publicly on the issue out of fear that they will be um, vilified online, in social media, and ultimately that this will have, in addition to just the, the sort of emotional effects that are inevitable from that kind of assault, that will have also a real impact on their sponsorships, on their viability as athletes outside of the arena itself. And so, yes, there is no question that the female field has been censored in this process. You're not on social media. Is that partly because this isn't an issue you want to debate on Twitter and Facebook? Only partly. I mean, I've never been on social media. I <laughs> I had a Facebook account when my kids were younger um, to sort of stalk them, if you will. But I haven't been on social media for a while, including before this. And so I'm glad I'm not on social media in this period because I definitely wouldn't want to debate this issue in sound bites. It's a very sensitive, complicated um, topic that, that I don't think is usefully discussed in that setting. But I think it's not only that. Castor Semenya, despite what anyone might think pro or con about the court's decision, has been put in a very tough spot. She's been made the public face of a complicated issue that's going to affect millions of athletes. Do you feel bad for the personal toll that this no doubt has taken on her? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think it's just extraordinarily wrong that she has been made the public face of this issue. I think obviously at some level, whenever we're made a public face of something and we're adults, we have to own an aspect of that. But this was not her doing from the beginning. And so, yes, she's been an extraordinarily dignified, gracious, wonderful emissary for her issues. When I say issues here, I mean for the cause for which she stands. And she does not deserve a lot of the negative attention she's gotten. If you're a caring person, it's difficult to watch it happen. But also just extraordinarily impressive to see how she's withstood these years of really difficult attention. Professor Dorian Coleman's article on Quillette is called A Victory for Female Athletes Everywhere. Professor Coleman, thank you so much for joining the Quillette Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.